Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Javi Kravitz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Avi Kravitz, and our guest on this episode is Ben Smithy, the founder and CEO of the Smithy Group, a digital branding and marketing consultancy with a special focus on the jewelry industry. We discussed everything from how to build a brand and a digital presence to effective content creation and social media strategy. And that's just touching the surface. I got a lot out of this discussion. I'm sure you will too. So please enjoy our conversation. This podcast is brought to you by De Beers Group Ignite, pioneering a new diamond world through groundbreaking innovation, science and technology. Inspired by the world's unrelenting change, De Beers Ignite is driven to develop creative solutions for the diamond industry, not only for existing challenges, but also for those it may never have faced before, helping you to achieve growth with efficient and accurate technologies throughout the diamond pipeline. Hi, Ben, and welcome. It's great to see you again. So it's your second time on the podcast. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me on again. The first time must have went pretty well. So we're back again. Here we go. It was better than expected. And uh, that, that time... <laughs> um, in fact, I think you're the first repeat guest that we're having on the podcast. It's an honor. And I'll wait for my trophy and my plaque in the mail, Avi. It's in the mail. The last podcast we did it was a group podcast. There were four of us on it. So this is an opportunity for us to have a one-on-one. So I'm looking forward to it. And thanks for the opportunity. And that last discussion was around the beginning of 2021. And And we were reflecting at the time on the massive shifts towards digital that took effect because of COVID and how the industry had pivoted to digital over that year. And and so it seems that a lot has developed even since then and and that it's been a fairly tumultuous time for marketers for the digital space through 2021 and first half of 22. So I thought we'd start with maybe if you could give us a bit of an indication of what has changed in that year and a half and what sort of big trends and developments that you've noticed in the digital space. Yeah, for sure. So what's interesting is, as we spoke about, as you can guess, starting in 2020 and 2021, an industry that we're in that's been historically a little bit more of a laggard into digital or new tech or things of that nature really started trying to catch up and move forward very quickly out of necessity. And while that was great for digital, what that meant was all of a sudden people that were coming into a digital space, they were entering a space a lot less equipped than the space actually required them to be. So they were used to posting content organically on social media and things of that nature, but they really didn't have a brand strategy, right? It was a content strategy versus a brand strategy. So they got kind of lost in that sea of sameness. On the other side, on the paid side, they didn't have the knowledge or the awareness of going from zero to 100 in terms of spending dollars in the space of what an appropriate spend was, how to spend appropriately, how to manage that media correctly, and also just what the state of tech is currently in the social ad space in the programmatic space, search, display, paid social, all of that. It's a totally different game. And it's changing rapidly when it comes to things like iOS updates, elimination of third-party cookies, pixel data, cross-platform tracking. All of those limitations are crushing a lot of people in the digital space if they don't understand what they really need to do today to really win and stand out. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And, and particularly on the branding side, all, all those acronyms, by the way, I'm not sure what you're talking about completely myself. <laughs> so that's full disclosure. Um, <laughs> right, right. But but what it does interest me is the difference between content creation and building a brand and using your content to build a brand. Because I think um, the one thing that COVID experience and, and that pivot to digital 
taught people was that content is king, but it's one thing just to create content. It's not what you actually do with it and how you distribute it and how it fits into your business strategy. And I feel that industry is now on board with the content creation aspect of it, but it's still maybe lagging on the branding side. Absolutely. I think there's two things, and we speak about this a lot, is that there's two things that separate a business and make them successful in the future. One is brand and the other is data. Brand is the only thing that's going to separate a business from the sea of sameness in digital and in anything really. And then the second thing is data. Data is the currency of the future and it's going to separate the have and the have nots. When you mention the brand side, when you look at businesses today, especially in our industry, let's just specifically talk about the jewelry industry. Most people think about brand. And if I said brand in a room full of 100 different retailers, manufacturers, partners, whatever it may be, they're going to say logo, they're going to say brand name, store name, history, legacy, trust, colors, maybe an icon, but they don't really understand. So the way I define a brand is a brand is a promise that a business has the opportunity to deliver on right? And a stronger brand means you make bigger promises and you deliver on them time and time again. And so when you build that brand equity, that's really what consumers are looking for. Consumers, especially Gen Z and Gen Alpha, are very in tune with what holistic branding really is, what a brand really represents. Let's take the number one icon in pop culture today, globally, Harry Styles. That's why Harry Styles can change the game when it comes to fashion, when it comes to you know skincare products, when it comes to music acting, all of these different things, because his brand that he's built is bigger than just a name or his latest album. For us in the industry, businesses really have to see and set themselves apart. Smith Jewelers versus Avi Jewelers versus Ben Jewelers versus Vanina Jewelers, all of these different brands, you can't rely just on your family name, your legacy, that type of stuff anymore. You really have to create a true presence of what does this stand for? What is our aesthetic? Yes. But what is our promise that we're making to a consumer that we are going to fulfill time and time again? So is that pointing to the values that the company might hold in terms of their sustainability message, for example, or is it more of a product, you know, quality product message that emanating, you know, all those elements of a brand, the aesthetics of the brand you mentioned still seem important, but there's an extra step that you're alluding to. And is that a very subjective sort of message that depends on the company? Yes, it is subjective depending on the company, right? We use a thesis in a framework called brand impact, right? Rather than to build brand equity, you have to build a brand that has brand impact. And the impact framework is an acrostic for intelligence, right? A brand that is going to have impact has to use, it has to be an intelligent brand. It has to have meaning. Meaningfulness means that it's able to create a relational connection with the consumer more than just a transactional, here's what we stand for, here's something that we say, it's more of an emotional connection, right? The P is power, meaning if we create enough meaning with the consumer, a meaningful enough connection, we have the power to get them to do something or take action, right? A in the impact thesis is for active, meaning a brand can no longer just be present on just Instagram or their website. Active has to be active across all the different channels and the ways that we consume media. If you ask someone how many subscriptions that they subscribe to before COVID, it was two. Now, it's there's only two that they don't subscribe to, right? So there's 5, 10, 15 subscriptions. So we're active across all of the channels. The C in impact is creative, meaning you have to have something that's creatively differentiating from the rest of the feed and the rest of the brand that goes out there 
You have to invest in your creative today. And the T is trustworthy. An impactful brand is, is trustworthy. And that means that from the data that you use, from the meaningful connections that you create, from the powerful asks that you're making from someone, from the activity, it has to be trusted time and time again. And you earn trust as a value proposition over time. So that's how we look about building a brand in those components. So to answer the first part of your question, it's very holistic. It's not just a product. It's not just a esoteric sort of emotional connection. It's not just a saying. It's all of those things wrapped together. And that's why it's honestly, it's a difficult thing to achieve. And that's why not a lot of businesses truly achieve building a strong brand. They build a statement or a tagline or a name versus a true brand. Well, it can be quite overwhelming. I think even just, um, you know, your suggestion that one should be across all channels, there's so many channels and they keep popping up. And so that content creation and that appeal to a broader audience can be quite overwhelming for a company. And I actually, I think maybe two years ago, the message would have been different that um, a company should choose a platform that is suitable for them and hone in and build a community through that. And that seems to have changed. Two years ago, I would have said that. Two years ago, I did say that. If you listen to me speak at a presentation two years ago, I 100% said, choose one thing, go really deep on it. What's changed is the opportunity cost of not being present across channels was greater than the gain of going really deep on Facebook or just really deep on Instagram only. That's where it becomes, you got to flip your methodology. Now, a consumer is going to discover something on TikTok, see it again shared on a reel on Instagram, DM it to one of their friends who's going to screenshot it, text it to their friend, and that friend is going to then click on the link that they sent along with the screenshot. So attribution, gone. Last click attribution, thing of the past, boom. And then go directly to the site to see it. Or discover something on Pinterest because I did a visual search. Click on it to a website. Be retargeted with an ad on Instagram. Do a shop now carousel ad on Instagram or a collection ad and buy it right away. Right through Instagram and never even hit the website. So if you only go deep on Instagram, you not only are only limiting to the Instagram audience, you're breaking that whole way that... Gen Z and Gen Alpha actually think about media consumption. They don't think linearly. They think cross-platform. They think all of these other things. And so when you pair that now to the other half of the data discussion, if you don't have the data intelligence and you don't have the means to track cross-platform and all these things that these walled garden areas like Facebook, Google, Apple are shutting down, there's no way you can play in that space effectively. Can you expand a bit on how one uses um, data to affect their cross-channel presence and marketing that, that a company might attempt to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go back a bit so I make sure that we're all on the same page. The sort of open cross-platform web data, right? So that could be things that you purchase online. That could be census data. That could be traffic to different sites, credit card data, all the scary things that you think is being tracked about you and you know are somewhere disparate out there in the universe, all of those things. And then there's walled garden information. So that's the stuff that Apple keeps on its own servers and private data. That's things that Facebook slash Meta, Instagram, they keep on theirs and they don't share data with each other very well, right? They'll consume data from others, but they won't share it out to other things. All the walled garden environments are getting really closed down. So Google is eliminating third-party cookie, which is how we cross-platform track from site to site, things like that. Facebook Pixel is becoming more limited because of things like the Apple iOS limitations that limit cross-platform tracking and people opting out of cross-platform tracking. So you have to think bigger. And the highest order of data tracking and analysis is in a device and it's called a MAID. It stands for Mobile Ad ID. 
And that's a string of, you know, 20 some characters and symbols. It's sort of a unique social security number for your phone. And every phone has one. So if we're playing in the mobile space, you have to look at a way to aggregate and track at a made level versus a pixel level. And so we use that through third party data aggregation and visualization and services like that, that we sit there and we'll map, say, customers, say a retailer's 500 best engagement ring customers. If you have their email addresses and you can take them out of the system, plug them in and track them back to maids, then I can sit there and map that to 12, 13, 1400 different pieces of third-party data out on the web. This is where it gets scary if you're a consumer, but really interesting if you're a business or a marketer. Because I can sit there now and build a really, really deep profile on whether it's political views, whether it's propensity to respond to text, email, direct mail, household income, demographics, whether you're interested in home goods versus automotive. And what that allows me to do as a marketer is build my creative and build my messaging in the right environment to target those people and build these primary and secondary personas on them. Then you can sit there and you can go out and you can capture other maids, other mobile ad IDs in the open environment and in the open web and send them into Facebook, Instagram, Google search display, whatever it may be. And you can now market to those people and cultivate your audiences that way. So it's way more powerful than what we used to do of just building audiences within Facebook or within Google Ad Manager. How's the industry, the diamond and jewelry industries, understanding the acceptance or onboarding of this use of data? I would imagine that there's still, as you said, the industry is kind of a laggard in adopting new technology and innovation. And so I would, again, it feels like this might be all a bit overwhelming for a mom and pop for a traditional jewelry retailer to embrace. Absolutely. So if I asked 500 people in our industry, if they knew what a mobile ad ID, I bet you I'd maybe get five people that said yes. And three of those people may have been at something that we talked to them about it, right? Which is fine, but that's not a limitation. I think that because people haven't heard about it, that's why we're trying to talk about it so much is because once people understand that it's there, it's going to save them money and actually allow them to attribute their media dollars. It's so important for a small business, a mom and pop jewelry retailer to understand how to really appropriately and effectively use their thousand dollars a month versus big retail jeweler or big non-jeweler that spends a million dollars a month, $500,000 a month, $100,000 a month. There's less margin of error for the small retailer. So they have to understand how important the data is, even though they don't understand it now, like we're trying to get the word out there that just building audiences in Facebook and Instagram and Google is really a dying thing. Because for example, I'll tell you the scary thing. Most people don't audit what platforms or what apps that they're sending their ads to on Google, right? Search and display ads. They do an open, like let Google tell you. If you are targeting females 25 to 50, which is a jewelry consumer and probably the number one target of a jewelry consumer. If you look and you dig deep enough into Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager and see where your ads are being sent and most of those clicks are coming from, if you haven't eliminated them, most of them are coming from gaming sites because mom has let their kid play on their phone or watch YouTube videos and that kid taps on all these ads that you've been serving them for your jewelry and it counts it as a female 25 to 50 household income $100,000 or more with children coming up on Mother's Day you served her that ad but now their kid is clicked on it while watching a YouTube video for Bluey or Simple Songs or whatever the heck they're watching at the time and now spent your ad dollar that's mind blowing and we're not talking about $10 out of your $1000 budget we're talking sometimes upwards of 50% of that budget has been sent on those sites <laughs> right. it's crazy that is crazy yeah 
You just have to proactively, it's just flipping the switches when you set up your ad campaign of eliminating from, let's say, we don't want it to go to apps or we don't want it to go to YouTube because we'll on YouTube, we'll run a separate YouTube pre-roll ad that's only focused on XYZ type of content, right? But if you just do a blanket, set it and forget it, Google's going to spend where it sees the most clicks for you because you've told it, I want clicks. And, and there's no way of tracking that as well. No, not at all. It's really interesting. Right. Right. So it's very interesting. And it seems that there are sort of new rules that are shaping the conversation all the time, that it's an evolving space and something that one really needs to keep on top of the different changes in legislation, in regulation, and so on. And so the rules of the game are changing. But then, you know, moving away from the data and back to the content creation, that doesn't discount the importance of good content. And as you say, one needs to put your content across all channels, but different channels have different needs. Um, so what works for YouTube doesn't work for TikTok and Facebook or Instagram Reels, for example. Um, so again, it requires this very broad sort of content creation strategy. And so your jewelry retailer might say, you know, I'm a jeweler, I'm not a content creator. <laughs> They used to be a jeweler. Now they're a content creator. And if they're a good enough content creator, they can afford to be a jeweler. Or they partner with someone or they hire interns or things like that. Look, this is not a pitch to go out and hire your local ad agency. Like that's not what it has to be. But it's just the table stakes. It's a cost of doing business. It's just where it is. And I'd be misleading people. I didn't say like, you don't have to do it. Like it's absolutely table stakes today. Otherwise, look, the past two years were gravy. The past two years were awesome. The past two years started with everybody thinking they were going to go out of business and then ended up with the past best two years of their business. And that is awesome. But now take that leverage, invest in the business, invest truly in the business on the future of the business. Either sit there and take these past two years as cash grab and be like, yo, transition or use these past two years as cash grab and say, hey, Here's how I'm going to reinvest in my business and bulletproof it for the future. Because we know you don't have to be an economist to know what's coming now in the next, say, three, six months to 12 months, right? We're not going to see as much of this crazy influx. And you're going to have to earn it. These businesses, everybody knows the worst competitor that was across the street or across the town had a new lease on life these past couple of years. But what's going to happen over these next couple of years are things are going to tighten down a bit. And you're going to have to play the game and you're going to have to get really strategic at it. And I'm not saying like, to your point for creative, you don't have to do $100,000 photo shoot, but you do have to take great creative strategic pictures. You have to be in the platform to understand what type of content is working, what type of content is consumable. Right now, Instagram has done a test and they're really going more into full screen TikTok style where it's full screen content in their feed. So now you got to rethink what your image approach is, your art direction approach is. You have more room and real estate to work with, right? You're going to look more vertical versus horizontal, those type of things. So you have to be in the game in order to win. You mentioned, you know, hiring and the investment in personnel, uh, whether it's an outside advisor, as you might be, or bringing in an intern or, or hiring um, internally. I was just wondering, because we're hearing a lot about the difficulty in finding talent across the board in the United States. And so... Is this a space that's difficult to find effective talent? Everyone's on Instagram, and so that makes everyone an expert type of thing. You know, if I've got an Instagram account, then I'm a social media manager. But I would imagine it's really difficult that there's maybe a scarcity to find the real expertise to make an effective strategy. Avi, you've done your homework and you are on your A-game today, brother. That is the number one hardest 
thing. It's the number one thing, even as uh, leading an agency, it's the number one hardest challenge today. Because of what you just said, there's a lot of content creators out there, but you have to find the ones that speak the strategic language because it's strategy first and then execution. If they can't speak to why they're taking a beautiful picture, right? The difference between art and creative is creative has to get somebody to do something. It has an intention, it has a purpose, and it has a requirement to action. It can't just be beautiful and it can't just be based on what I want to create as an artist. So a creative has to be able to understand the strategy for the platforms and speak to those things. You can find them, but you're absolutely right. Like it will be next to probably a bench jeweler because bench jewelers are pretty hard to come by right now. (laughs) Next to that, it's going to be one of the most strategic hires that you're going to make. And you're going to have to interview a lot of people. But how can you hire the right person unless you know the right questions to ask or the right things to qualify them by? So you have to do a little bit of research and be in the space yourself a little bit first. Right. I love that piece of advice that it's um, strategy first and then execution because it's easy to execute in a vacuum. And I think that's the big message that I'm getting from you today. Before we close up, I do want to just touch on two more topics and they might be connected, actually. There's been a lot of talk about the metaverse and separately also AI being used in the diamond industry and jewelry. And uh, I was wondering on both of those, and they may not mesh with each other, but are marketers or should marketers be thinking about the metaverse? Should marketers be looking at artificial intelligence um, in building their strategies? So for sure, the AI is going to come first. AI is already here when it comes to how platforms use AI to help distribute your content based on your media, right? So they're using AI to aggregate behavioral data to then link your data to 50 other people that look like you, and then using AI in an algorithm to send your content to those people. You're already in the AI space as soon as you run any type of ad today. So that's not just coming down the pipeline, it's here. It's going to get more sophisticated, large scale brand. If you're spending a million dollars in media budget today, you're already using very sophisticated AI because you're using things like DCO, which is dynamic content optimization or different content management platforms, CMPs. I'll throw some more acronyms out there for you, right? So you're using CMPs or or DCOs to optimize your media and your creative today. And it's basically you create one piece and then that platform will spit out 50 different variations because you're running 50 100 different ad variations at a time if you're running a million dollars in ad budget, right? So AI, definitely. You're already using it more than you think you are. And it's already being used on you more than you think it is. The metaverse is interesting. It's interesting if you look at Meta, the company, right? If you look at Facebook, Instagram, their number one priority, arguably, in point of investment, when you look at their summits and stuff that they've talked about, Zuckerberg has already been very bullish on Oculus. So in that space, what they're planning to do. If you follow the tech, right? Tech is already way ahead of every other industry because they're building it. So if you follow what the tech companies are doing, they're heavy into VR and meta, right? Metaverse. So everything will follow. I think you got a a 10-year lag before it's mainstream, right? Everything happens very, very slow in the short term and fast in the long term, right? And then an extra 10 years before the jewelry industry. Yeah, you know what? (laughs) I think though... But by in 10 years, I think we're going to have a different looking industry in terms of speed of adoption. I may be a little bullish on that, but I'm hopeful. I think we already do. Um, it's, it's an unfair, it's an unfair um, statement, really, because I think in the- it's an accurate statement, but hopefully it's not accurate for the future. But metaverse, I think, is interesting. I think you need to be aware of it. I would not look. Don't let the bust right now on crypto and NFTs deter you and say that, oh, it's not a real thing. 
it is something you need to at least read the headlines on. If nothing else, read the headlines, read the snippets about it so you understand what it is. Jewelry, NFTs, and things like that to back, the goods that we sell in an industry are too valuable that they will 100% all be backed up by blockchain technology, NFTs, things like that in the future. It 100% will happen because we sell too valuable of the goods. And that is the future of secure transaction is blockchain stuff, right? But in the metaverse, look, the only aversion is age and exposure. That's it. When you look at Gen Z, when you look at Gen Alpha, they've grown up in a space, in a Fortnite world, in a metaverse type world where they're used to purchasing using fiat real world currency to purchase virtual goods. There's not a mental hurdle to get over for those generations. So it's going to happen and it's going to happen in our lifetime. I agree. I think the long term is um, closer than we think. And another first for this podcast episode is that it's the first time we've really heard the term Gen Alpha, believe it or not. And um, sort of a a sentence or two, what is that age group? Is that um, your teens today? Yes. So the sub 20s today. Some people would say like under 21 today, but think about it. It's the teens today. And if you look at teens today, they've not known a time to where fashionable streetwear and luxury streetwear didn't exist, right? And to us, this is like a new thing. When you walk down and you say these crazy kids today in the fashion that they're wearing, right? They don't know a time where that was not appropriate or cool. They don't know a time that virtual reality didn't exist. They don't know a time where mobile connectivity and social currency didn't exist. They only know a world where influencers and buying something based on what someone with a lot of followers and social currency, they only know that space. They only know a space where US fiat dollars were not the only type of dollars that could make you rich. All of these type of things, they don't know anything other than a world that exists with that. What you have to pay attention to is they lack an aversion to trying those things and knowing those things. If you replace the aversion with real curiosity and intrigue, you're going to get there. And you're going to get there in a speed that will take it to market in a mainstream way that when it hits the mainstream market. But Gen Alpha is very interesting because the world of Gen Alpha that sees as real and opportunistic and real life for them is so dramatically different than the world that Boomers and Xers saw as real life. Millennials and Gen Z kind of bridged that gap, but they saw both sides. They saw it coming of age. Gen Alpha has only seen it as mainstream. Wow, it's um, it's kind of scary for a Gen Xer like myself. <laughs> but but you got to get on board. Yeah, but you you stay on top of things. You stay on top of things, and I think that's a good lesson though. Like it's okay for it to be scary because all things that are different and all change is scary. And anyone that tells you that it's not is lying. It is scary. Um, But I think that we have the tech to be able to understand it. Being scared by it is fine. Being averse to it or denying it, not okay. Being scared by it, fine. Let the curiosity intrigue you to understand it because you can't fight the future. So at least be intrigued, discover, research, immerse yourself into it. Because if you bet against the future, I can tell you 100% of the time what happens to those people. (laughs) <laughs> right, absolutely. And it's exciting as well. It's such a new world that you have to embrace it and learn about it. I do want to just touch on a, a final quick question. And the last time we spoke, we closed with the same question. And that is, what is the next big thing? You said that it would be voice. And that was two years ago. And I've got to suspect that it's maybe even a mute question because of what you said earlier about being across all platforms. But what, how would you answer that, um, that question today? So voice is interesting because I think it got disrupted a little bit by everyone being at home, right? And multitasking in different ways because they're teaching school and all these other things. I still think voice is really 
interesting. It's going to be the default built into things. But I'll say I can't give you the same answer, right? So I still think voice is very important. But honestly, Web3 is all about democratized data. And so understanding and data literacy. So the literacy and data intelligence, I truly think is going to be the next thing. And it's not one of those big things that's a new tech or a new product. It's one of those things that's built into the back end of everything. The fact that businesses are just going to have a better understanding of the back end of their business and the data and those things, that's going to really empower people to make better decisions. And that puts a lot of power into the small business that they've never had before, the transparency into the back end of their business. So I would say data, and that data will still empower crazy stuff with voice and AI. That's awesome. Ben, thanks so much. There was so much in this podcast, in this discussion that I've learned and that I think our listeners can take from. It's been a pleasure as always. So thanks so much for your time and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having me back. And hopefully we can hit the triple and I'll be back again sometime soon. I look forward to that. There's more to talk about. Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Rapport Diamond podcast. You can find Ben on social media channels at The Smithy Group and follow us on diamonds.net and all social channels under the Rapport Group. Thanks again and take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Ignite, a full-service innovation, science, and technology division within the De Beers Group, spearheading step change throughout the diamond industry. 